This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hey y'all, this is Javi Nicole, aka your favorite lesbian, and you're listening to Black Radical Queer Podcast, our stories on our own terms. Hey y'all, uh, thanks so much for tuning in to Black Radical Queer Podcast. Um, for this episode, I actually decided to split it up into two parts. So you'll get to hear the first half of my conversation with Karen here. And if you are a Patreon, then you can um, go ahead and have access to part two early. If not, then next week you'll hear part two to our conversation. Um, we of course, uh, we had a really great conversation and we went a bit long on time. <laughs> so instead of cutting out uh, our conversation, I decided to just split it up um, so that you all could could hear it all. So tune in to the first part now and then um, look out for the second part next week. Or if you're a Patreon or you become a Patreon, then you can go ahead and have access to it uh, ASAP. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We are, of course, back with another episode of Black Radical Career Podcast, and I have um, another guest on with me today that I'm very excited to talk to. Um, I've been already, I was already like reading a lot of a lot of his writing, but I specifically kind of honed in on a few things, on a few articles um, that I wanted to focus on, some things that he had written recently because they were just so timely um, and I felt like they would be really good to to bring to the listeners. But in the interest of time, I've decided I need to kind of like narrow it down and not try to do, focus on all the things because I was reading and I'm like, oh, I want to go focus on this one. And then I read the next one I'm like, oh, I want to focus on this one. So got to rein that in a little bit. Um, so before we uh, get into our conversation, conversation. Um, I'm going to allow my guest to introduce himself. And also I did already share a link to his writing on the BRQ Facebook page. So that way, um, you know, listeners can go and read uh, what he's written. So you can kind of uh, be all caught up like I am and um, and see, understand why I had such a tough time trying to figure out what I wanted to focus on for this specific conversation. Um, so go ahead and get started. You can uh plug whatever you want to plug. If there's anything um, you have coming up, um, you can, you know, let everybody know and then we will get into our conversation. Okay. Hi, um, my name's Kieran Scarlett. I am a queer black uh, filmmaker and culture writer based in Los Angeles. I've been doing a lot of work for Rewire News recently and they're a great publication. Their primary focus is on reproductive health and uh, immigration. And they're sort of allowing me to write a lot of stuff for their culture section, which has been really interesting and a lot of fun and it's a great outlet. And I'm also launching a podcast called This Made Me Queer with Kyle Turner, who is another queer writer, and he's based in New York. And it should be launching sometime later this summer. And it's sort of a very loose conversation where we give each other cultural access points that maybe we're familiar, maybe one of us is familiar with, but the other one isn't. And we sort of talk about how it was an important part of our pop culture queer narrative. And we just thought it was important because we have a lot of these conversations in the queer community, but it's so dominated by cisgender white men. So I think that having it between two people of color kind of puts a different spin on it. And I think we're both in those spaces, be it virtually or like actually writing for publications where we're around a lot of um, white cisgender men and the way they sort of inadvertently take up space and uh, perpetuate this narrative of starvation in terms of their representation where they are suddenly <laughs> a press minority. That's hilarious. And, yeah. And we're, well, not to us, sweetie. And also we don't, we're not just here to write about black stuff, even though we should be writing about black stuff before you because y'all mm. can write about it. Right. 
But I know it's just sort of carving out our space in that pop culture conversation, which I think pop culture is personal. Let's say the, the way that you say the political is personal. Like, I think pop culture access points are personal, you know, and I mm-hmm. love absolutely. I love the way people like Janet Mock write about pop culture and specifically how it relates to her upbringing and her milestones. And, you know, I think we need more voices like that and not just white queer men, which is what it's mostly made up of. Right. No, that's no, that's real. I do think um, all those things are intertwined. Like a lot of times people try to look at it as so compartmentalized um, when in reality we can't look at um things like pop culture or politics or whatever as being separate from us personally because they are a lot of times representation. So you look at pop culture, that is that is media representation. Like that is whether it's music, whether it's movies, whether it's television, whatever it is, there is some type of way that we connect or don't connect to it, um, which a lot of times is the issue is that, okay, I don't see my personal, you know, the things that are personal to me um, and my identity reflected in that or or the things that um, kind of connect you to a certain time, like, okay, during this time in my life, this is what was happening in pop culture. So all of that is relevant and it is something that is heavily dominated um, by cishet white folks, especially cishet white men who are like, you know, the quote unquote authorities. And I'm just like, you don't, there's other segments of people who you have no way of knowing how this relates to us. You just don't, you can't tell that story. You just can't. So totally it's, I listen to a lot of um, political podcasts and it's funny to me how they'll, it'll be three white people usually. And it's usually two, two cishet white men and one cishet white woman. Like that's, <laughs> that's usually the formula that I've noticed on like three of the podcasts I listen to. And so funny, they'll have these conversations where they're talking about like, say poor people and they're talking about poor people in the abstract. And I'm like, you know, you guys, you could have an actual poor person on your podcast. There right. Are- or like there are journalists who grew like none of y'all grew up poor. There are journalists who grew up poor. There are journalists of color who grew up poor. And you guys are talking about this like it's an impossible thing to figure out what poor people are thinking, it's like, um, or what their motivations might be. Subject, exactly. You know? And but they're given freedom to write about us as objects with objectivity. You know, where they're where they're like this objective voice that's observing us, and they're also objectifying us. And it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like it's almost like they think we can't speak or they don't want to hear from us they don't want to hear they don't want to hear from us even about ourselves and it's so frustrating and right it's, it's no, these- they just want to hear from other people like them what they think of us or what they think we're like or what their interpretation of us like i don't want to hear from an actual black person i just want to hear what white people say about like, like what a white person's interpretation or vision or stereotype or whatever of a black yeah. person is or a queer person of color or whatever which is so it's not like it's surprising per se but it's also ridiculous like it's also unacceptable too because they just cannot even though they have this um misconception that they can tell those stories and that's been reinforced it's been backed up by privilege i mean that's that's the part of their privilege that they get to be the narrators you know of stories that are not theirs and i'm just not here for it yeah and it's and not to get too off base but this way in which you know we're not surprised but they're surprised and they don't talk to anyone other than people like themselves it's why all these journalists were caught with their pants down when hillary clinton lost the election to a racist steak salesman like Mm. you know i think a lot of like when i think about the people the like the black journalists i follow especially black women it was like melissa harris perry and um yes and like bim Bim adewimney from buzzfeed and i I, I'm, i'm blanking i think even like Jamie Nesmith Golden was talking about this. Um, these are all black women who were predicting that Trump was going to win. Mm-hmm. And 
Melissa Harris Perry talked all the time about how she knew that Trump was going to win and she and she was working at L at the time and she had some power there and she still couldn't get a piece placed um, where she was talking about how she thought Trump was going to win because it didn't it didn't feel good to for L to run a piece like that and it didn't play into the narrative that everyone was trying to play into which is that oh this can't happen because what does, what will it say about America if he gets elected and we can't we can't go there as as white people who think that we've overcome all this shit and you know he's been elected now and so what does it say about America it says exactly what we already knew that's what we have been <laughs> well, saying is it says exactly what we already knew and so we're just kind of like okay well you know now you get some kind of slight glimpse because it's, it's still nothing in comparison you know they're freaking the hell out and we're just like oh this is just another day you know it my life has not drastically changed because of this because we've been dealing with this shit yeah so now you are looking at it differently you know now you're freaking out and oh my god it's, it's the apocalypse and i'm just like oh that's cute you know yeah exactly right. Let's take my work. <laughs> like like how they all freak out, Javia, about um oh Facebook is selling our information. It's like child black people have been surveilled by the government. Okay. Hello. Like if you really want to go there, I'm just like so it's so it's so it's like funny but not funny, but it's it's just so crazy to me to see the things that they get worked up over. And I'm just like, we've been dealing with this. Like, really? You you new to this, you know, we've been either lab rats or experimenting on, you know, all those kind of things. So it's like you freaking out about that stuff or just like, oh, that's old news to us. We're facing some like now we're just like looking at them and just kind of do the where you shake your head like, oh, baby. All right. They, you know, they really think they're going through it. Or the, um, so or, just, and, you know, I try to allow I try to allow for space for in good faith white people who are general who are genuinely horrified and just didn't know before. Because you know what? No one comes out of the womb, you know, knowing about um, systemic oppression and, you know, inter intersecting systems of, you know, racism and stuff like that. No one comes out of the womb knowing about stuff like that. But at the same time, it's like it's it's so basic sometimes like with this whole thing of trump holding children in cages or trump's administration holding children in cages where it's like this is not america like how it's like do you know how our ancestors my my ancestors were brought to this continent like do you, do you know how that happened <laughs> like do you even history like what are you exactly. talking about? this is the same song are you are you kidding and this was going on under Obama, by the way, like, let's be clear, maybe not to this degree, but it was it just it just kept getting worse. Like people are like, oh, Obama was the Obama was the president who deported the most people under his administration. I'm like, yeah, of course he was, because every president, it, every president becomes that president. You know, they all deport the most number of people because we just keep getting more and more. Right. It's about keeping brown it's people out of this country. Decreasing. Right. Exactly. So it just is math. Like, that's just how it works. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I could yell about white liberals all day. <laughs> so but no, what I wanted to what I had to just kind of narrow it down to in terms of um, one of your rewire articles that I want to talk about for this particular episode was actually in relation to Pose. Um, it was hard. OK, it was hard to choose. Because I, I call myself trying to narrow it down by saying, OK, I'm only going to focus on these articles. Like, I'm not going to uh, try to pull from pull way back or whatever. I'm like, let me just look at like the few most recent. And um, it, that didn't make it easier. <laughs> but um, I do feel like that that one in particular is very near and dear to my heart because it's something that I talk about a lot. And it's something that my wife and I have talked about a lot when it comes to uh, queer representation and black queer love and relationships and just um, all those things being so infused with trauma. And when I look at 
you know, these representations that I do hold near and dear to my heart, like Moonlight and like Pariah, um, that were so groundbreaking for me personally, it's always with that um, kind of caveat that it's there's this uh, tragic quality to them. There's this, and not saying that that is untrue per se, but it also is very limited. We don't get the same breadth and the same nuance and scope that um, that white people get in terms of kind of portraying their queer romances and their love stories and um, this sense of hope and optimism and um, even carefree, like just being carefree. Um, so that is something that really stood out to me because um, it's not something that we get. We don't. I look at those those portrayals and those stories. They do ring true, um, but we also don't get that balance of being able to have the carefree representation, the you know, that kind of thing there. It, it is always uh, infused and intertwined with trauma. Yeah, totally. Um, and I'm glad that you you made the point, which I was trying to make in the piece, which is that it's not that I'm saying that we shouldn't have Pose or Moonlight or Pariah. Of course, I'm not. Like, I love, all, first of all, I, well, I, I love some of those things and I like, I at the very least like all of them. But I just think that constantly being receptacles for trauma on screen, it really says a lot about how queer people of color, especially queer black people, it says a lot to how our experiences are so linked to trauma, which they often are. But that's not the entirety of, uh, of our experience. Like even someone who has been traumatized, like that's not the entirety of their experience in real life. You know, they they have moments where they experience joy and where they're and where they get to be carefree. And I also think that another big problem I have with it in a lot of these narratives with black people is that the cruelty and the trauma is often at the hands of other black people, which is also true and reflective of what can often happen, especially in families. But I think it's a way in which we perpetuate this narrative that black people are more homophobic than white people, which is not true, or that black people, black queer people mostly experience rejection and being ostracized by other black people, which is also not true. I think that it absolves white people, especially white cishet queer people, both men and women, of the role they play in ostracizing queer people of color. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they um, they set the tone for or not completely set tone, but they did. I mean, when we look at our history and we look at we look at kind of the implications and the byproducts of white supremacy. A lot of those things that uh, oppression, you know, it, it's just kind of that basis for a lot of the oppression. So um, they don't get to be exempt from the responsibility that they have in that. So um, I do think it is a very problematic narrative. For it to be like, well, black people don't accept queerness or they um, ostracize their their queer you know, loved ones and stuff like that. And not saying that never happens, but it doesn't happen more than it does in with white queer people. Like, it's not like, oh, well, black parents kick their kids out more than white. Like, that is just untrue. It's not true. Um, but that so is untrue. The, that's the narrative that's that's put out there that black people are so unaccepting of. And I'm just like, that has not, um, you know, of course, like. I've had, you know, issues or whatever with that, but that has not been the entirety of the experience. And black people have just not been less accepting than white people. It's just not true. But that it just kind of ties into this this broader narrative of kind of painting um, people of color and painting black people to be a very specific way and to be very flat and for us not to be allowed to have nuance and for there not to be room for more things other than trauma. So we it's right. like 
our trauma. And so that includes families being very um, rigid and not accepting and very like uh, religious and just kind of um, demonizing their their children or whatever. All of that plays into this whole idea of like uh, how bad it is, how traumatic it is to be black and to be um, black and queer and to kind of that be your identity. It's like, oh, it's so it's so devastating and it's such a tragedy. But there is beauty like there's beauty in blackness, there's beauty in black queerness, but that is not what we are shown. We're shown trauma porn. Um, and we do go through trauma. We, I mean, we do, but that is not the entirety of our identities either. Like the entirety of my identity as a black queer person is not trauma. Yeah, exactly. And also to circle back to something you were saying about this notion that black parents kick out their children more or that black people are, they reject queerness more. I think that's like to sort of position that as uh, socially and culturally and like historically, like as a fact, that's really violent and inaccurate because it is. It's been it's been proven, and there's like historical evidence to support this that a lot of cultures before they were interacted with by European colonizers and settlers had a lot more progressive ideas about both sexuality and gender mm-hmm. before they were touched before they were touched by European settlers and before you know we were taken as slaves from Africa and we had this you know, Christian doctrine, you know, beaten and raped into into us. Yeah, it's before we got infused with that respectability, the whole respectability politics and like, this is what you have to do to be a good, decent Christian person. Um, and, and it all it's a byproduct of that, which is why it's so um, it is very deliberate. It is a very deliberate form of um, of oppression to paint black people out to be that way, to be like, oh, black folks don't accept that. Or even this whole idea of um, I talked about this with another guest um, with the the episode that just dropped um, where we we're talking about, oh, such and such is some white people stuff. And it's like, well, actually, no, that's not true. But that's what we've been conditioned to believe that white people get to be nuanced and we don't get to be nuanced and we don't get to be accepting and loving and all that, that we're just put in this box of being negative. I um, think this was, not- was this the episode I listened to last night where you guys were talking about Tantra? Yes. Mm-hmm. So on that episode where we're saying like, oh, well, people, a lot of times, uh, people of color, we don't feel like we have access to certain things because we say, oh, that's for white people. In reality, it's like a lot of times that it comes from us, but we've been taught to believe that we can't do things like that. Like we don't do things like that. And that's not what, what we should do to try to be as um, seen as kind of like good people. Like we need to be as respectable and regular <laughs> and vanilla as possible um, so that we can. And really, it just ties into our humanity. Us be, like we feel like these are the things we have to do to be seen as human because that's what we've been told. We've been told, OK, you're animals. And if you want to be a good, decent person, this is how you need to live your life so that you even have some type of slight remote possibility <laughs> of us seeing you as human, of you being humanized and not being objectified. So but so it's definitely not true. It's not true, though. It's definitely not true that um, that we're less accepting. I've just found that to just totally not be true. Um, but that is definitely the narrative that that is pushed out. Yeah, absolutely. And what you were saying about the perception like, oh, that's white people stuff. Like it's it starts with stuff like, you know, Tantra or yoga, and then it trickles down to stuff that everyone should probably everyone would at least benefit from. I'm not going to say what everyone mm-hmm. should be doing, but stuff like therapy, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, therapy, that's right. For, like there's still this. I mean, I don't want to put her on blast too much, but I just remember casually mentioning to my mom over the phone I um, that I was considering going to therapy. I should. And I didn't say again because I guess she doesn't know that I have been before, but it was this sort of quiet. And she's like, OK. And then she called 
called me back 10 minutes later and she's like, I just want to make sure you're okay. And I'm like, yeah, mm. I'm, I mean, I'm fine. And she's like, oh, because you said you're going to go to therapy. And I was just surprised that there's still this very, there's this fear of therapy and there's and it's I think it's viewed it is viewed as something that white people do and that white people mm-hmm. have access to and then and I think that some people often view it as almost like oh that's like an indulgence it's like oh look mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. look at that with their it's a luxury or, thing yeah their organic produce and their and their and their therapy and their yoga and their exactly and their therapy where it's like well you know organic produce is good you know it, it shouldn't be expensive you know therapy is good therapy should not be expensive these should not be white people things these should be human things and also white people didn't invent any of these things right that is something that is nuanced in terms of uh kind of how black people and how people of color or black people in particular view therapy um because it, on one hand, it is looked at as like, oh, that's that's something that white people do. And a lot of it is because we are we have been conditioned to work through whatever we're going through. So if we are struggling mentally or emotionally or whatever, we're supposed to just keep pushing. Um, so we are supposed to be like the, you know, the workhorses. So there's that. We're also supposed to not display that. Like, it's like, okay, that's stuff that you keep to yourself. Like, you have stuff to do, so you can't, we're not allowed to show emotional nuance. Um, and it's also seen as something that's weak. Like, oh, well, um, especially in regards to religion, like, okay, well, that's something that you pray about. That's something that you, you know, your faith should take care of. Um, so there's like all those things that are operating. Plus, just distrust of the medical industry anyway, which is completely completely valid um, considering oh, yeah. treated, you know, so it's kind of like all those things operating where it's like I can completely even as someone who is in human services, who is in mental health, I can completely understand someone being like, I don't want to talk to no to some white man about my problems. That's completely valid. I don't need the girl <laughs> like, you know, I don't either. So I get that um, because we need more folks in the field, too, who are people of color. Um, and there are plenty, you know, there are people of color in the field, but a lot of times because we look at it as, oh, well, this is a white people thing, we don't see ourselves reflected in the field either. We go to the doctor, we go to these people, they're largely white, they're largely white men. And I I don't trust them either. So I don't want to go to therapy if I feel like uh, my vision of it is I'm on the couch talking to some white man who's taking notes about what I'm going through. I don't want him in my business. So it's like, is that operating in addition to the, oh, well, you know, you're supposed to work through it and be tough and be strong because, you know, we don't get to be emotional or nuanced and the, oh, you're supposed to use your faith. Like your faith is what you should fall back on um, because God forbid you be, a, you have faith and therapy. <laughs> like it's like they can't coexist. So we're kind of op- navigating all these different uh, nuances in regards to like us seeking out therapy and just us doing things for our own mental and emotional well-being. Yeah, totally. And what you were saying about not wanting to go to a white therapist or a white practitioner of any sort of medical treatment, it's like if they can almost kill Serena Williams in childbirth, a woman with all the resources and all the access, like what's going to happen to, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I can't, I, I would never be giving birth because I'm a cisgender male, but like what would happen? Theoretically, <laughs> like my regular self. Yeah. Like what would happen to my regular black? Ass. And also similarly, I have a friend, he's a queer man of color, and he was telling me about his new therapist and he mentioned that he was a white man. I'm like, oh, that's so it was so alien to me. And he's like, oh, but he's gay. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I, I First right. of all, A, I'm not talking to a man. <laughs> 
like period and b like the idea of sitting down and talking to a white male therapist i just i feel like you have to be able to open up to the person and i feel like that's the one area mm-hmm. where we need to be selfish in who we're choosing and yeah and i think that there there should be i know that there's more of this now but like more networks where they're giving people of color access to networks where it's specifically you know therapists of color and for women of color if you just mm-hmm. want if you specifically want to go to a black woman because i know that a lot of my black women friends they're not comfortable going to anyone but a black woman and that right. completely makes sense given their experience no no i think that's that's definitely true i mean i am glad to see that more of those things are kind of coming to fruition and we're starting to get those resources but of course <clears throat> excuse me of course we need them on a larger scale and it's going to take some time to kind of like catch up because we are in desperate <laughs> dire need of uh, mental health resources and just healthcare resources in general. And, um, but I, but I do see that need is being met more and more, um, you know, slowly, but surely. So that is something that is really, really important. Um, because it is, I mean, when it comes to your care, of course, that's a trust thing. Like you are entrusting someone, uh, to be responsible for that and to really, um, have your best interests at mind. And I'm just not the one in terms of like, I can't trust a white man to have my best interests at heart. I just can't. I just cannot. So it's like, that just is what it is. Um, So we need to be able to connect with our practitioners in that way. Um, Not like we have to be BFFs, but there is a certain level of intimacy and connection that we need to be able to have to be able to establish that rapport and that trust that, okay, I can really count on this person and for in uh, regards to my care because that's your that's your well-being you know that is largely in someone else's hands it's in your hands but you're also relying on this person as a resource um so that's really important um and we talked about that too in another in another episode uh, when I talked to um, to Zay yeah it, it just kind of like um, shows us like how important it is that we do have those people that we can connect with um, because I can I can totally understand not seeking it out and of course that's not the only reason so it's like some of the reasons I'm like okay we have our unpacking we need to do but that reason in particular I'm like yeah I get it I get why you know you're kind of giving the side eye like I'm not going to therapy if your perspective of it is that you're talking to some white guy you sit on the couch and you know even though that's even that is a outdated kind of perception of therapy but if that's all you know then I can understand that and if more people it's like this is a weird comparison but it's like voting if more people had access to it if more people could afford to do it people literally can't afford to take a day off to vote if there was fair access to it more people would do it which is why there isn't access to it right because you know a class of black people of all all socioeconomic backgrounds who are having access to therapy who are able to vote without any sort of you know impediment like that means the end for a lot of white supremacist institutions honestly if we are mentally take if, if our mental health and our physical well-being and our ability to vote in free elections was insured like game changers they would it would change things in a way that they know which is why they deny us access to these things and which and yeah, why that's, they, like, like, that's very much like hey, this is oppression at work and it's working well type of thing because resources and accessibility, accessibility is everything. Accessibility is everything. So once you have access to some stuff, it changes. I mean, and people can see how that operates in their own everyday lives. So, I mean, I see the difference now in my life with there are things now that I have access to that I didn't. It changes everything. It really does. So, and th- and I mean, that's, that's well known. So it is very deliberate that we have these issues around accessibility and our resources um, because 
is to keep us, you know, keep us where we are and to keep that progress from happening because we already see in history, we can look at um, how kind of people of color have advanced and stuff like that. We have some shit. If we have the accessibility that we need, oh, it's over. We're going to get it done. So it's not whether or not we can isn't the issue, but it's like having the access to everything that we need to get it done. That's where they, that's where they get us. Yeah. And that's why I wrote that piece about Pose in particular, because I think it's not just actual access, it's access in terms of the narrative that we're selling to children, where, like, I remember telling my parents that I wanted to, you know, be a filmmaker. I entered college as an accounting major to sort of appease them. And... I was like, oh, I'm going to make a movie after I graduated from college. They're like, but yeah, but what are you going to do? I'm like, I will find some kind of job to support myself while I'm making this movie. Mm-hmm. And they're like, but mm-hmm. who's, they're like, but who's going to see this movie? And I got really angry. But looking back, I'm like, oh, they are coming from it from a perspective of they don't let people like us do. They don't let people who look like us do right. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. who look like us don't have access to those spaces. And I'm still, you know, I've made inroads. I'm I'm still writing. I'm still submitting. But like I've been paid to write. I've been paid to write scripts. And it's it's so wild. My parents. Well, I don't talk to my dad so much, but my family has sort of eased up on that a little bit. My immediate family. But I still get it from extended family where they're like, oh, so like, what are you doing? Or they'll read. Mm-hmm. Or, or they'll, like, what are you really doing? <laughs> or they'll. Or they'll read an article that I wrote. They're like, wow, you're a really good writer. And I'm like, what do you think? Yes, I am a good writer. What do you think? This is what I do. (laughs) What have been doing for the past, like, 20 years, pretty much? Like, what do you, like, like, what do you think? I've just been chilling out here, going to the beach? Right. Like, they don't see. But no, that is, a lot of times that is what they think, though. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> that's funny though. It's like, uh, yeah, this is what the fuck I do. Um, that, but, mm, but that's that's a whole other thing because that kind of ties into you know just what's seen as valid and what's not seen as valid and um what's seen as work. You know, um, so it's like, okay, well, certain thing. If you say, oh well, I'm a doctor, that's one thing. If you say I'm a writer, it's not looked at the same way. Even though there's this impact and this influence that writers have that doctors don't. You know, writers shape yeah. a lot of things. You know, they shape a cultural narrative. That's, I mean, that's, you know, really, really powerful, but uh, it's just kind of the way that we look at certain things, you know, certain industries and jobs and careers or stuff are more valid than others. Yeah, and val- valid and I think honorable is a is a good word where like mm-hmm. you know I I um I made a move I directed a movie with with uh, John Henry who I think you know from Vox but um we directed this movie and it played yes. in Atlanta. <laughs> I'm huh? like I remember and I was like yeah I remember John Henry. Yeah, we played the movie played in Atlanta like at an actual movie theater and not so much my mom because my mom was I think my mom got on board with the whole filmmaker thing before that but. Especially with my dad, who is very much, you know, focused on appearances and sort of like how he can get into how he can get into rooms and be impressive to people. But like him seeing the fact that I made a movie and him actually being able to see the movie, I think that was the first time he actually respected the fact that I was trying to do this. And suddenly he was giving me a whole bunch of advice like, oh, you should go work with Tyler Perry or something like that. I'm like, oh, and but it's it's like until they until they know that I shouldn't. But until they're able to see it in a form that they sort of recognize, it's not valid or honorable to them. Whereas like a doctor, you don't have to you don't have to go and audition and like make it in a big sort of way to be a doctor. Like you don't like when people hear I'm going to be a doctor, they're like, OK, there's a clear path to that. You go to you go to college for four years. You go. I don't know, whatever. I I haven't watched Grey's Anatomy in a long time, so I don't, I don't remember the exact sequence of college, but of schooling for doctors, but <laughs> like the go to resource, <laughs> but like it's it's clear, you know, lawyer, it's clear you go to college, 
go to law school. But with a writer, it's like, okay, you go to college and you get a writing degree or you get a communications degree or something. And then what? It's, it's not like there's a clear path into being able to support yourself as a writer. And that, and I was thinking about that a lot with um, when I wrote the post piece and I mentioned Love, Simon, where Love, Simon is about this white teenager who's coming out and it takes place in Atlanta, which really surprised me. I didn't realize that. Yeah, till that the surprised end. me too. I actually did not realize that. I was like, this is supposed to, not my Atlanta. Like, really? I didn't, okay. re- I didn't realize it until the end where they pulled back and we. I'm like, that's Atlanta. Right. Like, that's but not I'm- even... That's not even Atlanta I mean, they're trying to play off. Was it supposed to be set? Was it just like filmed there and supposed to, was it actually supposed to be set in Atlanta? It's, you know I, I, mean? I checked, I, I Googled and it's set in Atlanta. I think, that I think it's based, crazy. I think it's based on a book that's set in Atlanta, I believe too. Oh, it, it didn't feel like Atlanta to me at all. I knew it was filmed there because it, what isn't in between LA and Atlanta, everything. But yeah, I'm like, this is not, it's interesting. Like Atlanta specifically, maybe like a smaller town. Yeah. No, not even. I don't know. That was interesting. And, and like, yeah, even a school. But like, anyway, but there are two characters in that movie. There are two queer characters of color in that movie. And, you know, they're not experiencing trauma and they're not sort of being ostracized by their families, but they're also stripped of any sort of narrative agency. And they're sort of in one case, it's one character who's completely like a it seems like he's asexual and he's he's like the one he's the one openly gay kid in school Mm -hmm. and simon Mm -hmm. and simon doesn't even entertain the possibility that it might be him because like oh i could never be with someone like that black femme pressed hair no it's not that's yeah and so we're either we're either receptacles for trauma or Or just have no narrative at all or (laughs) whether we have no narrative at all or we're like the kiki friend you know and i just like I would love to see a centered and a regular average ass movie like Love, Simon, because not everything that centers us has to be great either. We have this burden that everything we create, everything we put out about ourselves has to be great and has to be this great artistic statement. Like we have to have freedom for mediocrity within our ranks as well. And I don't mean mediocrity in the sense that like we're, you know, we're not talented. I mean, we have to be able to tell, you know, commercial stories and mainstream stories. We all want, you know, not just the extreme, not just the, the extreme of like trauma you know regardless of the truth in it we still need i still just need to see like i need to be able to turn on the tv and i can see a story of two black queer guys that are just like we're in love we don't, we're being carefree we're doing ridiculous shit it doesn't matter like i still need that too it everything doesn't have to be so quote-unquote deep it doesn't have to be i'm facing this major dilemma i might just want to see them going on about their black ass queer ass lives picking out some fucking linens and shit because they just got a house and they're like, oh, we're about to decorate and we just got, you know, we're starting a family, whatever. I want to see those stories too. It doesn't always have to be some huge either thing about oppression, like Mm -hmm. about slavery or about violence against us and all those kind of things or how our families don't accept us. Sometimes I really just want to see black people, black queer people just living regular ass lives because we do that too. I mean, we have families, we have households, we have, we go out on dates, we have sex, we do all those things. So I just want to see like black queer people, I want to see queer people of color existing in that way too, like just regular. It's, it's not normalized because we're seen as the others. Um, and I just want to see those everyday portrayals because we do live those lives. Yeah. And I think about way I think about the times we do see black queer people in sort of regular 
quote unquote average situations that's not all about their oppression. They're paired with white people. They're paired with a white partner. Like I, because it's almost like, oh, two black people right. can't have that on their own. Like I that's think the only about, way to have access to it is through a white partner. Yeah, in, in um in the Family Stone, which is um this movie that came out in two thousand five with Diane Keaton and Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh one of the brothers in that movie is gay and his he has a black partner. And you know they're all very accepting of him because they're white liberals and the daughter carries an NPR tote bag. And it's all very, it's almost like, you know, they're, they're, he's there for Christmas. There's no mention of his family. He's just, he's part of their family because it's almost like, oh, they couldn't have, you could never have two queer black people who have that. I love Moonlight. I think Moonlight might end up being my favorite movie of all time. That movie just hit me on every level, but also not everything needs to yes. be that. Not everything needs to be a black right. kid getting picked on so badly that he has to pick up a chair and smash it over the bullies, right. which gave me or so much he, life, um, I have to say. Or everything doesn't have to be like this um, where there's this thing lingering. Moonlight is so fucking beautiful and it's, it has this like, it's hauntingly beautiful to me. Like, I mean, I remember watching it and like, I mean, to this day, my wife and I still like talk about it all the time, but I was having dreams about it. Like I could not get it out of my head. It was just, it stuck to me. So, because it was the thing that resonated with me the most, even though these were men still, this was the thing like for my black queer self um, that resonated with me in a very deep way. But I just remember being kind of, it being bittersweet because it's beautiful. It's haunting. And, um, but I just remember at the end and I'm like, I want them to be able to have a love story, like an actual love story. Um, that's not so drenched in, um, in this haunting, like without it being so haunting or without it being so, so much violence and pain and trauma. Like I'm just looking at them like, okay, well they, they deserve a love story too. Like they deserve the carefree moments too. Like, um, you know, so it just kind of, it was a bittersweet thing. It's still fucking amazing. Like it, even thinking about it now, like it blows my mind. It, I, I don't know if anything else is in any other like cinematic thing has impacted me the way that it did, but it's still at the end. I just remember really craving that. I'm like, I want us to have that too. Um, and it was similar, not quite on the same, uh, to the same degree with Pariah. I did, I did definitely identify kind of with the main character. I love her, but it didn't hit me quite as hard as, as Moonlight. But in both stories, I just remember being like, I want to see them have joy, you know, not just trauma and not just like um, this kind of anticlimactic. I don't know. It just, I just really wanted to see them have some joy and it be very carefree and very um, bold. And so that was something that I didn't get from either one of those that really was like sad. It was really sad to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that what Pariah and Moonlight have in common is that they both leave you with, if not uplift, they both leave you with the possibility that joy is coming in the future. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. Alike, Alike and Pariah, she's going off to college. You know, she's her mother has cut her off, but you know that's that's not always permanent. That could always change. Um, and I think Alika definitely left space open for her mother and her father. And I think that her her and her sister, but she's going off to, I think, Berkeley. And you know you know that she's going to kill it there. You know that she's going to have all these experiences there that are going to shape her life. And she's also going to have to push back on a lot of stuff. And similarly in Moonlight, you know, it's complicated. Kevin has a son. Sh- 
Chiron has his own demons to deal with. And they're what I also felt like with Moonlight, you get this idea that, oh, but they're still going to be cloaked in secrecy because right. even, though, even though he's not with his, even though Kevin's not with his wife anymore. Um, and Chiron has so much trauma to work through, I feel like before he can even be in a relationship with anyone, because he even says in the movie, he's like, no one, he's like, no one ever touched me other than you. Right. And that was deliberate like that him being touched by someone who then the next day betrayed him that really fucked him up and he has to work through that all that's possible but you know will it happen we don't know but there's not like that uplift where it's not love simon where they kiss on a ferris wheel at the end you know Mm -hmm. exactly where it's like it's almost the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of uplift. You know what I mean? It's like they, they kiss. Now they're, you know, riding around together. Now he's, you know, like his his boyfriend is like in the passenger side and, you know, his friend's in the back and blah. So it's a different level. Um, it, it, With both, though, with Pariah and with Moonlight, um, like you said, we are left with this um, gl- kind of glimmer of possibility. But um, with Pariah, with Alike going off to Berkeley, you know, my thought process was just like, okay, well, if she does have that, look where she had to be. You know, look where she has to go for that. You know, so okay. it, we're still not seeing it. Mm-hmm. And so we're still not seeing it in the midst of her community, in the midst of her people. It's like she has to go off to Berkeley to have the possibility of this joy and this, you know, of her living her life. That that saddens me. Or even with Chiron and Lord knows, like I, these are of course like characters, but when I say I feel like these are these are people that I know and that I <laughs> that I don't. It's really in that a lot of ways I feel like um I can just relate to very personally. But with Chiron, it was so I don't know. It just has this very tragic air to it because, like you said, he does have a lot of stuff he needs to work through, and um so I. I didn't even get the same uh, same depth of kind of optimism like with Alike because with Chiron, I just feel like, okay, there's this moment. It just felt very momentary to me, very like in that specific moment, but it was hard to really see the, the trajectory of it. Um, because her going off to college, it's like, okay, that's still kind of a, you can, there's more openness, but in that situation with Sharon and Kevin, it's like, I just didn't feel even that level of openness. Um, the obstacles to happiness for Sharon and Kevin feel a lot more stacked against them, honestly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, it's for them, it's stacked against them. And 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 look where they are, though. They're still kind of in their community with Alike. Um, in order for it not to be so stacked against her, she has to leave her people. She has to leave her community. And that just really fucked with me. Like that really, it saddened me and it really bothered me because I was just like, you know, from my experience, that has not been the case. Um, that's not just like a blanket thing where it's like, okay, well, the only way for you to be able to have more of that possibility of joy is for you to remove yourself and for you to not be in the spaces with your people. Um, so that was since, very- Especially since Alike lives in New York, doesn't she? <laughs> right. So I'm just like, really? That's some bullshit. Like, come on now. New yeah. York is- you have, Thrive, go, you, know. you have to go all the way to Berkeley? Right. Like, for, that, real, so for in order for her to, like, live her life, she has to go all the way to Berkeley. Yeah, it, it was very... I noticed that too. And also with Love, Simon, where, you know, you have him ending up with this uh, biracial black classmate. And, you know, so you have his biracial female friend played by Alexandra Ship, and the other biracial friend and and the only fully black person. Not that this, but like just to talk about colorism and like it's almost like these people have to be steeped in whiteness mm. in, in order to be part of his core culture in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. And in order to be part of his social group, rather. And he chooses this black boy and it's like, okay, so this is a white guy and a black guy dating in an Atlanta high school. Let's talk about that. Let's go there. Right. 
Come on now, because it is not all sunshines and rainbows. <laughs> but, which which makes it sound like I want to see trauma. It's like I don't need to see trauma, but I need to see honesty about how it's um how the how the dynamics of this work because that's definitely something to right. navigate. And also, I mean, that was the opportunity to explore that that was not utilized. Well, but but my thing is, okay, either you're gonna either explore it right, like mm-hmm. actually take advantage of the opportunity, or just give me a fucking bubblegum ass film. Just do that. If if it's not gonna if if they if you know we don't get to see all that nuance then don't don't give me any nuance with anybody just let them run off into the fucking sunset and i don't need to get all this nuance about simon's ass either <laughs> you know that's exactly. fine if it's gonna be that let it be that carefree love story nothing there's nothing stacked against them there's no issues it's all perfect and beautiful that's fine i'm okay with that but the discrepancy is what is where the issue comes in. Like if it, if that's how you're going to treat it, then just treat it like that across the board. But if not, then I need to see the nuance across the board too, whichever way you're going to do it. It is similar to what you were talking about in, um, it's a different article, but it's where you were talking about Roseanne, the Roseanne um, situation. But like, just situation. Looking at, like how, <laughs> but looking at the show, like Roseanne initially versus, and I felt similarly because I actually did used to rock with uh, with Roseanne um, back in the day um, until I realized that it was problematic. But it's this lack of nuance like you were talking about well the characters of color versus like the white characters and who got these full storylines and looking at her her supposed friends her white friends we got to know about their lives and her friends of color supposed to be her friends they were just like props they were just like Oh, they would, you know, throw a catchphrase in there every now and then, but we didn't get to know about their marriages and their children and their what their likes and dislikes were in stuff like that. So we didn't get the depth. And so that's my thing with Love Simon. If that's the case, if you wanted to have this very like sugary sweet type of ending and everything's all fine and well, that is perfectly fine with me. Then just make the whole thing that way and don't give me this depth on this white boy. And then I get no kind of nuance with that is definitely would be there in that situation, like. In, in an interracial gay male relationship in Atlanta, all this kind of stuff. Like the most nuance that they gave him was basically saying that he was Jewish. Right. That's it. That's what we got to know about him. He's an athlete. He's this, he's that. We didn't get to know much about his life. We knew that he had went, um, he like some stuff with his father. He mentioned it. That's it. And so I'm like, give me more nuance of him too, so that it can truly be there story um, as opposed to you know and, and, so, and so it's meaningful and so it's meaningful when they end up together also I wanted the ending I really wanted was for them to get together and then for Alexandra Ship to be like oh y'all are dating well did you know that Simon earlier he basically tried to pimp me out to this dude so that he wouldn't tell everyone that Simon was gay and I'm his one black female friend and he this white guy tried to pimp me out to this greasy white dude right and, and now he wants to have a black partner he like, wants okay. to have a black partner and then he's like oh really he did that word okay yeah Simon we're done I'm going to Morehouse. Bye. And <laughs> right. Just be unapologetically black. Yeah. I just wanted something more. But but you know what? The thing is, too, I realized that I'm in the theater. I'm watching this and I'm like, oh, this is cute or whatever. Um, but I knew it wasn't for me. Like at the end of the day, I knew that this story is not for my me as a black queer woman. It's not my story. It's not it's not even like intended to be for me. And the opportunity that it had to be for like to at least kind of like connect more to black queer people was fucked up. So whether it was Brom, I think his name was Brom or something like that. Um, something like that. He, Bram, Bram, yeah, Bram, Bram. Um, him not being nuanced, and then the other um character who they had who had like the straight hair. Um, I wish I could remember his name. Who was like more femme? Who I was the, the like, actor's name is Clark Moore, I believe. Okay, so but I'm like they had that opportunity with Clark to to have more nuance and to have more development because Clark is a badass. Like. 
you know, was definitely like stood out to me in the film. But those opportunities were not utilized. Yeah. So and, I knew it was. I'm like, this ain't for us. <laughs> yeah. And it's and, you know, I already mentioned this, but it just it really it really bothered me the more I sat with it, where it's like, oh, this black femme character who was so great. And, you know, I think that there's so much femme shaming among among queer men. But, you know, you have this black femme character who is really who has a lot of agency over his own life. But he's completely, like I said, desexualized. And the movie doesn't even accept him right. as a as a possibility because like Simon's almost like well I could never be with someone that gay which is you know a whole other conversation about the whole masculine feminine bullshit dichotomy yeah yeah because of course who he ends up with is an athlete you know (laughs) who he who no one would ever think yeah (sighs) yeah except that actor that actor is kind of femme presenting in real life which I like right Mm-hmm. But but that's this is not that this is the movie and the movie definitely had him styled in a very specific way. Black Radical Queer is a main hustle media podcast hosted by Javi and Nicole and produced and edited by Charmaine Johnson. Music is by Young Carts. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Rat Queer. That's B L K R A D. QWR. And you can also listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to stay connected to us in our discussion group. It's called the BRQ Discussion Group on Facebook, where we will continue the conversations that we start in the podcast. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.